Morning. Chipper group. I like that. Hey, real quick before we uh, get into the word, I just wanted to uh, give you a heads up on this initiative that we're doing here at Baby Glen called Table 246. Uh, and the goal is to get us in neighborhoods uh, and in homes eating together as church family. The reason why we're doing that is because uh, just a few months ago, we did a survey of our church and learned that about half of those who would call Bayview Glen home on any given Sunday morning uh, have been here for less than five years. Uh, so about five years ago, our church would have about 400 adults, give or take, on a Sunday morning. Now we've got about 1,100, 1,200 in a high time of year, give or take, on Sunday morning. We're about three times the size as we were. And so you've got a whole bunch of brand new people here that, uh, you know, they attend worship and, you know, hear preaching and, and, and music and all that stuff. And they hey, that's good. I'm going to come back. But maybe haven't made kind of connections in the community of faith that is Baby Glen Church. And then... We've also got some folks here, and I was talking to one, uh, actually, she was sitting right here in the first service, and I said to her, I said, uh, Miss Marion, how long have you been at Baby Glen Church? And uh, she said, hang on, let me put my ears in. So she put her hearing aids in, and I said, how long have you been at Baby Glen Church? She said, 40 years. I said, wow, 40 years is a long time. Like Some of you are like, I've been here 40 minutes. You know, she's been here 40 years, and she would look around our church and say, you know what, there's a lot of brand new people, a lot of brand new faces here, and I'd like to get to know them. So it doesn't matter if you've been here for 40 minutes or for 40 years, there just are a lot of brand new faces here. And so Table 246 is an initiative where hosts that we've trained and worked with are not awkward people, and I know many of them, you will eat really well at their homes. I'll just tell you that right now, all right? So what it is, you're going to sign up with to, for a dinner that's close to you, and you're going to get together with six, eight, ten people, give or take. I realize they're strangers. I realize that's weird. But after two hours at dinner, they're not going to be strangers anymore, okay? Problem solved. Easy, okay? So you're going to go break bread and find family. Have a dinner together, meet some people that you worship with, and, and start to develop uh, some connections here beyond just, you know, I come to worship and, you know, I come on Sundays. And that's great. We love that. We love that. But we want you to develop friendships. So let me just tell you about a couple of locations here that are coming up in August so that you can be mindful uh, of one that's, that's near to you and convenient for you. Uh, Young and Major Mac. You will eat well there, I'll tell you that. Vic Park and Lawrence, Mountain, uh, Martin Grove and Steeles. Two at Bayview and John. Uh, another one at, one at Young and Finch, one at Bathurst and Finch, one at Steeles and Laurel Leaf, and one at Jane and Weston. Um, oh, man, we got more coming in August. Look at that. Young and Finch, Bayview and Steeles, Bathurst and Steeles. All the, I mean, it's just all over the place in the GTA. There are dinners that you can sign up for, enjoy a free meal. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not bad. Students, <laughs> yeah. Sign up for a couple. Doesn't matter to me. That's fine. So uh, sign up for one. Meet some people. Make some connections. Uh, August 9, 2 on August 9, August 10, 11, 14, 15, 17, 19, 22. Two on the 23rd, one on the 24th, two on the 25th, and one on, uh, two on the 26th. I mean, they are coming around the bend. You can find one that's convenient for you in your neighborhood. Get together, table 246, break bread, find family. Right after the service, out those doors to the left, there's a registration table. You can sign up. There'll be people there that help you find one that's convenient for you. Sound good? Okay, everybody on three, you're going to say, yes, Lucas, we will do this. Okay, one, two, three, go. Oh, you don't mean it. You don't mean it. Don't, don't blow smoke up my kilt like that. Don't. Uh, but hey, it's a great opportunity for us to, to break bread and find family. So I would highly encourage you, exhort you as your pastor to, to do so. Uh, before we get into the word, let's pray together. God, thanks for the opportunity to worship you, to set our sights on you, to focus on you today. 
Thank you for those songs, uh, especially just glory to God. No matter what is going on, God, no matter how I feel, no matter what happens in my life and circumstances, no matter what's going on inside of me, no matter where I'm at in terms of the sanctification process, God, you always deserve attention, so we can always sing that. God, now in these uh, next moments, 35 minutes or so, would you get glory and attention in the way we talk about your word? In the name of Christ, the people of God, together said, amen. There's a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, uh, many of you know who that is, but in case you don't, he was a Christian uh, pastor and theologian and scholar, thinker, writer, a fascinating, fascinating man. If you're looking to read an autobiography or a biography, a man named Eric Metaxas wrote a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer that is uh, spectacular. It's called Prophet, Pastor, Preacher, Spy or something like that. I don't know whatever the title is, but it's a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was unique and fascinating, really, because he was a Christian pastor and theologian in Nazi Germany. Uh, which is kind of an interesting place to be a Christian, especially a pastor, don't you think? And he was in Nazi Germany before uh, the Nazis took over there and that uh, fascist regime took over. And when uh, Nazi Germany kind of rolled in and took over that country and began to collect Jews into uh, concentration camps with the eye towards exterminating uh, God's people from the planet, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer began to push back as a Christian. He began to rally people together in a resistance movement and push back against uh, fascism and against the Nazi uh, government. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his brother, and many of his friends and uh, co-resistors were rounded up as well and placed in concentration camps because Hitler wasn't just interested in exterminating Jews. He was interested in exterminating anyone who wasn't like him or might pose a threat. Uh, Two weeks before Allied troops flooded into Germany and began to liberate concentration camps, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said a quick prayer, walked the gallows, and was hung and executed in the concentration camp that he was in. He uh, contributed so much to Christian thinking, especially in the 20th century, so much to Christian ethics because uh, being a resistor, uh, you know, just the idea of between nonviolence and violence, I mean, just very, very unique, unique man. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, a, a bestseller and translated into multiple language all across the world. And in this book, Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this one very pithy, uh, very poignant quote and makes this one very poignant statement that is going to guide our time together in John chapter 12 this morning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This, my friends, in just a very few words, is the call of Christ. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I want to make it very, very clear this morning that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Little did the Nazis know that when Dietrich Bonhoeffer walked those gallows to his own death, uh, Bonhoeffer had been dead long ago. (laughs) He had already died to himself. The Bonhoeffer of old was gone. There was a new man, and Christ was living in and through him. I want us to see this call of Christ together for all that it is in its richness, its cogency, 
and it's in John chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, open them up if you would. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. We've been studying through the Gospel of John. This is one of Jesus' best friends writing a biography of the life of Jesus in order to convince you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, receive life in his name. We started in John, or we, last week we were in the beginning of John chapter 12. We talked about how Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but he came to make dead things alive. And so Jesus is going to explain to us now here in John chapter 12, we'll start in verse 20, what it means and how a dead thing becomes alive. He's going to help us wrap our mind around the how uh, uh, we live this new life in Jesus. So John chapter 12, verse 20, we're going to read the whole section of Scripture, and then we're going to talk about it. So here's what happens. Uh, among those who went up to worship at the feast, that's a Passover, were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip. Went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, lifted up on the cross. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The reality is we don't have time to unpack this entire section of Scripture. The fancy word is pericope, so we're not going to unpack the entire section. We're just going to unpack the beginning of it, the first half. I would strongly encourage you to employ some of those skills that you learned in our BIBLE series and study the second half for yourself as we continue to study through the book of John. So let's spend some time in the first half and take a look at this call of Jesus. This is what happens here. Here's the context. Uh, it says that now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now this is fascinating what John tells us. You can't just pass over this stuff and you know, just ignore it, but look, look what's happening here. Those who came up to worship at the feast were Greeks. Were Greeks. So they're not Jewish. There's a lot of Jews here at the time in Jerusalem for Passover. In fact, Josephus would tell us about 2.6 million, give or take. Even if his numbers are inflated, that's a lot of folks in Jerusalem. Most of them Jews that are scattered all around that first century Roman world are converging on Jerusalem to worship. But these are Greeks. These guys are not Jews. They're, they're Gentiles. They're, they're, they would be seen as far from God. They would be seen as not knowing Yahweh. In fact, when they came to the temple to worship, they would have to stay in these outer courts. Could you imagine if you came into this place to worship and someone's like, you sit in the foyer, Greeks. <laughs> 
had some Greeks in the first service, some Greek people. They would have been mad at that. Actually, I'll tell you that right now. And they corrected my Greek pronunciation, which was very, very nice of them to do. Um, but imagine if that was the case here. That was the case then. But these guys had come to worship at the feast now. So now what we know about these Greeks, although they are far from God, although they wouldn't be allowed to enter all the way into the temple, they fear God, don't they? They came to worship God at the feast. They came to celebrate. They came to honor. They came to investigate. They came to seek out. These are God-seekers, people who want to know God. Not only do they want to know God, look what they say to Philip and Andrew. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Like, we've heard about him. They come to Philip. They come to Andrew. They've heard about him. They've heard of his miracles. They've heard of his work. They've heard of his teaching, and we want to see Jesus. Now, check this out. Christians in the room. Christians, okay. If someone comes to you, who's not a church person, unchurched, non-believer, not a person of faith. They come to you and they say, you know what, I know I'm far from God, but I, I've really begun to investigate this God thing. And I think I'd really like to learn about him and even worship him. And not just God, but Jesus in particular. I'd love to maybe know that person. Okay, number one, that never happens. Okay, number, number one. Like nobody comes to you and goes, your life is so holy, tell me about Jesus. That doesn't happen. So this is a diamond in the rough, Right? Like, this doesn't happen to most of us anyway. It's a diamond in the rough happening to Philip and Andrew. So they're fired up, man. They're excited. They're excited. So they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, here's the deal. Uh, we, next slide, next slide. Here's the deal. We met these Greeks. Philip and Andrew, they, they went to tell Jesus. They, they told Jesus, we met these Greeks. They want to know you. They want to know God. They, they, they're investigating. They're seeking. They want to meet with you. Let's meet with them. And Jesus says this. He goes, what? He goes, uh, he answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that sounds pretty benign. The reality is that it's not. Because at this point, Jesus has been telling his disciples for a long time that the hour is coming. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. All through the book of John, all through the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the hour is coming. The hour is coming. And the hour is always when Jesus is going to get killed. The hour is always Jesus is going to be crucified. The hour is always Jesus is going to disappear. The hour is not. The hour is coming when we're going to ride into Rome and take control. Like, that's not how Jesus talked, but that's beside the point. Like, the, the hour is never uh, he's going to be the king. The hour is never he's going to be exalted. The hour is always he's going to be humiliated and he's going to be crucified and killed. But up to this point, the hour is always coming. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. Now watch what Jesus says here. Now he says the hour has come. The hour's come for me to die. God seekers, I'm going to die. Then he launches into this thing about you got to die too. Unless you die, you won't live. You've got to die too. Here's what we learn from the first three verses, John chapter 12, verses 20 and following. That Jesus is the worst preacher ever. <laughs> he really is. You guys would kill me if I did this, wouldn't you? You guys would kill me if I, it's bring a friend Sunday. Bring a friend Sunday. Bring your friends that are seeking God and that want to know Jesus. And you came in here and your praise will ever be on my lips. And everybody's like, this sounds really good. This isn't as bad as music as I thought it would be in church. This is nice. And then the preacher gets up there and goes like this. Oh, we're so glad that you're here. Thanks. You got probably invited by a friend. Isn't this nice? Thank you for coming out seeking Jesus. God fears people that want to worship him and know him. You got to die. Like you would, you would be angry with me. And of course, I say this facetiously, right, that Jesus is the worst preacher ever. But think about this, that Jesus, even, he, he's not making any apologies, is he? He's not sorry for his call. 
He's not Canadian. He's not sorry for much, right? So he's not not apologizing. He's not trying to sugarcoat it. He just says, you want to know me? You want to know God? You got to, it's time for me to die, and you got to die too. Now, here's where we're going this morning. Look up at me now. You got to die too. That's the call of Jesus. That's the call. So you got to die too. Let's keep going. Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus specifically is talking about himself right now. He's going to start talking about us here in a minute, but he's talking about himself. And he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's using this analogy, this symbolism of when you plant a seed into the ground. And once you plant that seed into the ground, it transforms and changes and becomes a plant. Now, a couple things. One, Jesus is not a stupid man, and his audience is not stupid either. This is an agrarian society. They know how to grow things, and they know full well that when a seed is planted into the ground, it doesn't actually die. So for some of you that are thinking, well, that's not really what happens to a seed. It doesn't die in the ground. Like, Jesus knows that too, okay? So what he's saying is, here's an analogy. He says, unless it falls into the ground, unless it buries, unless it's buried in the ground, it doesn't change. It doesn't transform. But if it does, it bears much fruit. It changes from a seed to a plant. See, when that seed begins to sprout and you look at the plant, you go, oh, that's different than what it was before. The seed is gone. It's been changed. It's been transformed. But if it's just flying around in the wind, nothing happens to it. It's got to be buried. It's got to be transformed. It's got to be changed. But then he uses this word that I think is really critical for us to understand. It's this word right here. If. See, this is conditional. (laughs) What he's saying is death is the prerequisite for resurrection. You, You don't rise to new life until you die. Death is the prerequisite for resurrection. Like I said, he's speaking specifically of himself. He's like, I'm not going to rise again unless I die. Like, things that are laying down having a nice rest don't rise to new life. That's just getting up from a nap. That's different. Jesus is saying, I have to die. I have to be buried in the ground in order to change, resurrect, ascend, and have a glorified body so that I bear fruit. And the fruit is you. The fruit is me. The fruit is those who are sitting here. That's what's required. It's the prerequisite. There is no other way to do that. Now, with this condition in mind, Jesus now wants to talk to you. Watch. Next slide, please. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's saying, unless you die like I do, unless you release, unless you let go, unless you are willing to leave that old self behind, you won't experience new life. And it's interesting. I've highlighted these, wor- these words here, life, because they're not the same in the Greek. They're the same translated into English. But in the Greek, this is suke, suke, and zoe. Those are, those are 
different words. This one here means kind of internal mind, thought, feelings, will, desires, that kind of stuff. This one here means eternal life, abundant life. Not just eternity in terms of length of time, but eternal life in terms of quality. Eternal quality of life. So let's put it in the New Lucas translation. Okay, ready? Whoever loves his inner self, thoughts, feelings, and mind loses it. And whoever hates his inner self, thoughts, and feelings, and mind in this world will keep it for eternal life. Abundant life. Quality of life. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world, now watch this, will keep it for eternal life. Watch what Jesus is saying. So I think this is brilliant. Because for me, we start to understand death of self. Like my old self is gone, my new self has come. We start to understand that. We start to think of like, whoever I was is dead, gone, and obliterated. Right? And then Jesus is giving me this whole new person. But watch what Jesus says. That's not what he says. He says, if you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for eternal life. That word can also be translated guard it or safeguard it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you've got this old self, this false self, and you've let it run rampant, and it has taken hold of you, and it has entrapped you, and enslaved you, and it has killed you. I don't want to obliterate it. I want to redeem it so that you keep it. You retain that image of God in you, but we get rid of the chains. You retain how God designed you. You retain those things, but they don't overtake you and control you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, will help us again on this one, but here's the principle Jesus is sharing. He says, death of the false self results in life of the true self. When those things that have trapped me in terms of my identity, in terms of my desire for position, in terms of my will, my preferences, my desire for power, my sexuality, have overtaken me and been exploded and expanded beyond what God designed them to do, or have deviated from the boundaries that he set up and they take control of me, once they are placed on the altar, I am given new life in Jesus and those parts of me are redeemed. I'll tell you a couple stories to help us understand. C.S. Lewis uh, tells a story in a book called The Great Divorce of a man who has allowed his sexuality to run rampant and run out of control. And the man uh, is is, uh, the character in the story, and his sexuality is represented by a lizard that sits on his shoulder. Like, which I think is a fantastic image, don't you? It's like you're in a downtown area, somebody has a parrot on their shoulder, and you're like, ah, it's a pirate, you know, that's awesome. It's like, what if somebody had a three-foot lizard on their shoulder? That'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? Very weird, but that's the deal. And this man simultaneously loves the lizard and loathes it. He can't stand to live without his deviant sexuality and the way that his sexuality has overtaken him, but he can't get rid of it because he's bound to it, controlled by it. The lizard is in control. So he's approached by an angel, and the angel says, I can take care of the lizard for you. And the man says, that'd be great. And the angel says, I'll kill the lizard. And the man says, no, 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 no. I can't get rid of the lizard. What I want is a very slow process of lizard management. The angel says, that's not how this works. If you want it gone, it's got to die. The man finally agrees. So the angel kills the lizard and the man. But that's not the end of the story. Because the man and the lizard are resurrected to new life. And the lizard becomes a stallion, becomes a horse, 
becomes a very functional and very beautiful thing. See, this is the nature of dying to the old self, that Jesus doesn't just obliterate who you are, but redeems who you are and transforms those things that once entrapped you into things that give freedom and life and joy to people around you and to yourself. This is exactly what Paul says in Colossians. Look, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that lizard, gone. Sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, all of that stuff is idolatry. Now watch this. He says, and put, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and has put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. See, you are still made in the image of God. So greed turns into radical generosity. Sexual immorality turns into uh, sex within the context of the marriage like God designed it to bring a joy and life. Uh, your desire for approval from picking Instagram, which is not even a real thing. Like it's digital. It's not even a tangible thing. All somebody has to do is hit the delete button and Instagram goes away and you're going, I need approval, I need approval, I need approval. It's your lizard. It's trapped you. It's killing you. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. I'm not getting rid of your desire for approval. I'm going to meet your desire for approval. Do you see it? And adopt you into my kingdom and say, you are loved, cherished, adored. I rescued you. I redeemed you. Bonhoeffer would say it this way. He says, Jesus' commandment never wishes to destroy life, but rather to preserve, strengthen, and heal life. For those who hate this life, for those who crucify their old self, metaphorically speaking. They're given new life in Jesus. Jesus says you will guard it. You will keep it for the life to come. See, death of the false self results in life, eternal life, abundant life for the true self. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I heard a story of a pirate who spent his entire life searching for a treasure. Once he found the treasure, he put it on a ship, was sailing across the ocean. Storm came and obliterated his ship, obliterated his ship. And this treasure that he spent his entire life searching for was sinking to the bottom of the ocean. So the very first thing the pirate did was wrap his arms around the treasure. So now he has a choice, doesn't he? He either sinks to the bottom with it or he lets go and receives new life. See, this is what God whispers to you even this morning. He says, let go. Let go of that old self. Let go of your passion to defend yourself and always be right. Let go of your desire for position and authority, even in the context of the church community. Let go of self-aggrandizement. Let go of pride. Let go of ambition. Let go of insecurity, these things that you hold so tightly to because they're killing you. And you can't engage in a process of management. The lizard's got to die. Jesus keeps going. He says, if anybody serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus uses this word serves three times. Servant and serves. He says, God will honor those who submit. God will honor those who die to themselves. God will honor those who place themselves on the altar. But Jesus also tells us that this caveat, this invitation, is that we follow him. 
that we walk behind him, that we look where his footsteps have been and we place our feet in his footsteps. Just as my kid walks behind me on the beach and she watches my footprints and she just puts her feet right where I go. This is how we follow Jesus. But understand, Jesus is not walking to a wedding in Cana where he's going to turn water into wine. Lots of us would want to follow him to that party. Jesus is not walking up a hillside where lots of hungry folks are and he's going to feed tens of thousands or over 10,000 likely with just a couple of loaves and some fish. Lots of us would want him to want to follow him there. Jesus has set his face resolutely on Jerusalem. He knows in the next 48 hours he will be betrayed and strung up. This is where he invites him, us to follow him to, to the death of our old self and to life eternal. This is what it means, uh, Jesus, when he says follow him. He, what he means is that following Jesus is not an add-on. He's not the cherry on top of your life Sunday. You got work, you got family, you got hobbies, you got golf. And then on Sunday, you come here a little late and you leave a little early, which is super rude, by the way, so stop doing it. Swiss chalet's still open. Just don't panic when it's like, it's like, all right, everybody, amen. And everybody runs out like during the last music. Like, don't, don't do that. That's, that's not in my notes, but that's just ridiculous. All right, so it's not an add-on. This, this day, not, and it's not even just this day, it's Jesus. And we treat him like this is kind of one more thing in my life. What he's inviting us to is exchange our life. Here, you take it. Dead people don't defend themselves. Dead people don't grip tightly to their lives. It's easy for Jesus to take and transform. It's always easy, but easy for Jesus to take and transform. When you're dead to your old self, dead people don't fight back. Jesus just starts changing stuff, and dead people go, oh, I'm dead. I followed you. My old self's been crucified. Following Jesus is not a nice idea. Understand, uh, both Christians and God's seekers in the room, that this isn't just kind of like, hey, isn't this great? And I'm not saying, like, I'm trying to burden you with stuff or whatever. Like, Jesus' burden, uh, his, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Following Jesus is a joy. But following Jesus means that we've got to unpry our grubby little white-knuckled fingers off the stuff we love so much in this life. You know why? Because it's death. And it's killing us. Gotta let go and take hold. This is what Bonhoeffer means. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But if you take Jesus up on his invitation, here's the promise. If you die, you'll live. If you die, you'll live. You'll live abundantly. You'll live in a new way. You'll live in a fresh way. All those things that once bound you, all those things that once killed you, all those things that once prevented you uh, from doing what God called you to do, you get new life in him. I've watched this happen over and over and over again. I've got a friend who played baseball for 20 years or so in the major leagues. He was an all-star multiple times. He won a Silver Slugger Award. Got the winning hit in the 2001 World Series. Had a big fat World Series ring to prove it. Uh, he is a buddy of mine. And when he retired, he went through significant depression and overeating and all kinds of stuff for a couple of years because his identity was so wrapped up in baseball. You see, for 20 years, he thought that was the source of life life until it was taken away and then he realized maybe that was a false self maybe maybe just maybe that was never meant to give me the kind of life that I wanted and so when he said okay take it 
God began to breathe new life in him and breathe new vision for his sport and all these different things. And he's now uh, living a new life in Jesus, a changed life in Jesus. And this doesn't just happen to athletes and musicians. It happens to pastors. There's a guy named Matt Redman who's a pastor in, uh, in the UK. And he was a worship guy, music guy like Andy. And he's written a bunch of uh, records and like platinum albums and songs that we sing in here. I mean, he's world-renowned as a, as a church musician and as a worship musician and for a year in Matt Redmond's church they decided that they weren't going to do any musical worship because musical worship in that place had become a little bit of an idol people were worshiping the music instead of worshiping the king and so they stopped for a year and the pastor said Matt you're still the worship leader you've got to lead our congregation in non-musical worship things like prayer and bible reading and silence and all that kind of stuff and Matt said oh that sounds okay that sounds good and then three four months in all of a sudden his identity started to come apart why because he was always the music guy. Now there wasn't any more music. And again, he had to die to himself, release it, and then let God redeem it, not obliterate it, not get rid of it, but redeem it. And at the end of that year, he wrote a very popular song many of you know called The Heart of Worship because God redeemed that part of who he was. I don't want to just talk about other people. I want to talk about you. There's a lizard on your shoulder, and it's killing you. And you cannot bear the thought of living without it, but it is eating you alive. It's a besetting sin. It's your sexuality. It's your need for approval. It's your need to be successful. It's your need to be skinny. It's something in your life that is killing you. And Jesus is inviting you to put it to death so that he can redeem it and restore it. To unclench your fingers and let go. And watch what happens now. When you've truly died to yourself, even the most atrocious and challenging and difficult and fearful times, your heart has changed and you see them differently. Watch what Jesus says. He says, now my soul is troubled. Troubled because he's about to be crucified. Troubled is probably an understatement here. He's about to go to the cross, betrayed by one of his best friends, and go to the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Rescue me? Prevent this? Let this cup pass from my face? He says, no, for this purpose I have come to this hour, so Father, glorify your name. Not get me out of it, but use me in the midst of it. There's a story of Mother Teresa. She's walking around uh, downtown Detroit, which um, doesn't seem like a wise idea, but that's beside the point. She's walking around downtown Detroit, and there were two women watching her walk through. And one of them said to the other one, oh, I can't believe how much God has done through her and in the world and how much good God has brought through her in the world. And I wonder what kind of commitment that takes, what kind of resolution that takes, what kind of perseverance that takes. That's amazing. That's incredible. And the other woman simply responded to her, see, when you're free to be nothing, God can use you for anything. And that's the truth. When we're free to be nothing, God can use us for anything. See, this is where Jesus was when he says, Father, should I say save me from this hour? No, the old me 
is going, Jesus didn't have the old me theologically, but stick with me here. He had had totally submitted his will to the Father. He had totally submitted who he was to the Father. So he didn't have to say, save me from this hour. He said, just use me. Do something good in the world. Glorify your name in the midst of who I am. That was the case with Mother Teresa. That's the case with Bonhoeffer. That's the case with C.S. Lewis. Quite frankly, that's been the case with me. Uh, This afternoon, I'm going to get on a plane and go to Florida, hopefully adopt a baby next weekend. Uh, Amy and Kyle will join me uh, tomorrow in Florida. But just like Jesus facing this moment, uh, we go into this adoption uh, not knowing uh, what's to come. We're uncertain. Why? Because two summers ago, we had one fail. And last summer, we had one fail. So this summer, we go in hopeful hopeful that this is the baby that's meant for us. After our very first adoption failure, I collapsed emotionally. I couldn't take it anymore. I was so terrified what was to come next. I didn't know if my heart was going to be able to endure another one. And I remember texting my former senior pastor. I said, buddy, uh, what I'm looking ahead at emotionally is just, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And he didn't respond personally. He didn't respond with, hey, I just want to encourage you. I'm praying for you. All he sent me, all he sent me was this verse. Go back one. Now my soul is troubled. (laughs) What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What he's saying to me is, is your soul troubled? Yeah, it sure was. So what do you say? Bail me out of this? No, Luke, for this very purpose, you've come to this hour. So let God glorify his name in it. A year later, I would officiate my uh, daughter's birth parents' wedding, the ones that changed their mind. My daughter was the flower girl. My wife was the maid of honor. God was glorified in the midst of that. I didn't do everything right. I certainly didn't. Amy definitely didn't do everything right. She did a lot of stuff wrong in the midst of that. (laughs) Same thing in the midst of our adoption failure last year. We didn't do everything right. But God got some attention. God got some attention. Because we we did all that we could to die to our old self and be raised to new life in him. What shall I say? Save me from this hour. It's his purpose. I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I don't know what it is you're facing in your life right now. What uncertainty, what insecurity, what fear or failure. But when you're free to be nothing, God can use you for anything. When your old self is gone, God can use you. Put that slide back up there again, um, Monica, please, if you would. When we're free to be nothing, God can use us for anything. A man named George Mueller was a, um, a pastor, theologian, preacher uh, in the 20th century, but he wasn't any of those things really by trade. Uh, he was just a Christian man and loved God and decided one day that he was going to open his home to children on the streets, bring in orphans. And he brought in a couple, three, four, and then he brought in 10, 20, or 30. I'm sure his wife was thrilled. And then he had to buy a bigger house, and he brought in more and more. And George Mueller was known to be a man of prayer, a man who trusted God, a man who went to God for everything. And over the course of his life, George Mueller would care for over 10,000 orphans in his home. 
and bring him in and give him uh, food and give him education and a place to live and a place to stay. Absolutely changed the world for those 10,000. And the reality is uh, because they passed on that life to so many others, the world was changed because of George Mueller. One time George Mueller was asked a very similar question that those two women asked about Mother Teresa. What kind of perseverance, what kind of commitment, what did it really take to do such a great thing in the world, do something radical and transform the world. George Mueller responded this way. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since, I have st- since then, I've studied myself or to study to show myself approved only to God. I love this first statement that George Mueller makes. He says, there was a day when I died. Like Mueller, like Bonhoeffer, like Mother Teresa, like so many others, and like Christ himself who went to the cross and was resurrected to new life, there is a day when it's time to die. So here's my appeal, my invitation, unapologetic, frankly, on behalf of Jesus. Today is your day to die. Whether you don't know Jesus, this is how you know him. Whether you are struggling in your life, this is how God comes in and redeems it. You die to yourself. Whether you've been a believer for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, today is your day to die to that one thing that you're still hanging on to. Maybe there are many things you're still hanging on, but it's just that one thing, that desire for approval, that desire for power, that sexual addiction, that besetting sin, whatever it is, today is your day to die to that thing, to confess it to somebody else, because that causes you to die to yourself real quickly, doesn't it? To tell somebody else, nobody wants to go to a church, right, where it's like, hey, grab a partner, somebody close to you, and tell them the worst thing you've ever done. Like, nobody wants to do that. But James tells us to confess our sins to one another. Why? Because that crucifies the old self. It humbles us. We tell somebody else, you get prayer, and you watch God transform it. Today is your day to die. Today is your day to forgive somebody else something that you've been hanging on to. And it's that lizard on your shoulder. It's that pirate chest that you're clinging to that's pulling you to the bottom of the ocean. Today is your day to die to that thing and let go. Today is your day to die. The response to the call of Christ to take up your cross and follow him and then consequently, subsequently, receive new life in him. That response is very, very simple. I want to guide you through it now. If you would pray with me. If you've never said yes to Jesus before, or if you were confused as to what his invitation was, this is it. So here's the response. The appropriate one, I guess. Jesus, there's a lizard on my shoulder that I can't bear the thought of living without. But I know it's killing me. So today is my day to die. I place myself on the altar, my preferences and tastes and will and desires, 
my desire to defend myself, my desire to hold grudges, my desire for gossip to make somebody else look badly. I place it all on the altar. And with you, I go to the cross. And I pray that that grain of wheat, that seed is buried in the ground and is transformed into something new. It's a very simple prayer. With heads bowed and eyes closed, for those of you in the room who are Christians, I asked myself in my study this week, I actually wrote it down, how do I convince someone that they are trapped by their old self, still dead in their sin? Or even if they're experiencing new life in Jesus, how do I convince someone that that whatever that thing is has trapped them? Pride, approval, whatever. My simple answer that I actually wrote down in my notes was I can't. But I pray God does, because he can. I pray even in this moment, even right now, he convicts your heart and breaks your heart of your pride. Breaks it of arrogance. Breaks it of rebellion and resistance. And at that old part of you, you place on the altar and say, I'll allow it to go to the cross so Jesus can breathe new life into me. God, we're grateful that your call is not just an add-on or kind of a fun new thing to do, but that when you call a man, you bid us to come and die. Teach us to be people that are dead to our old self and that we're risen to life, experiencing our new and true self each and every day. In the name of Christ, the people of God said,